If you're at all interested in what's going on in the genomics and biotech sector, stay tuned. The innovation, disruption, and breakthroughs taking place at companies in this space are destined to be among the most exciting for investors in the period ahead. Joining me to talk about it are Lisa Langley, CEO at Emerge Canada, Inc. And Ali Ehrman, analyst at ARK Investments, sub-advisor to Emerge ARK ETFs, sponsor of the Emerge ARK Genomics and Biotech ETF, ticker EAGB. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Lisa, Ali, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Lisa, the genomics and biotech ETF ticker EAGB is specifically one of the disruptive innovation themed ETFs you are most fond of talking about among the big six themed Emerge ARC ETFs your firm sponsors. Tell us a little bit about why you think this is such an extraordinary theme to invest in. The primary reason is that there's a tremendous sense of urgency for us to improve the quality of healthcare and to prevent and stop thousands of diseases. And the breakthroughs that are happening every day are real. Sometimes when we're speaking to advisors, we ask them who here believes or who in our audience believe that they actually will go to a physical that requires their genome to be sequenced. And in their lifetime, they'll go back again a year or two later, and they'll have that done again. And, you know, something, perhaps an abnormality, will be detected that will save their life. And so uh, I think in this theme in particular, while all the themes are very important to improving our world condition for communications, and, you know, transportation, et cetera, this one actually is very personal because medicine has to advance and, and we need to cure cancer yesterday and, and we need to save people that, you know, are very savable. And I think we're going to look back, you know, certainly Allie and all the things that we've learned from, from her, you know, tremendous insight. We're going to look back 10 years from now and we're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, unfortunately, you know, that is so curable now, but it wasn't then, uh, you know, oh, unfortunately this person suffered with that, but now that can just be, you know, and then outpatient treatment be cured, you know, so there's just so many things that we're right on the cusp of. And, you know, that's one of the things that we just think is so exciting because this really is going to make the world a better place. And, and personally, it can help us live longer, more healthy lives. Here, maybe just to, to piggyback on, on what Lisa's saying, which is all really, really well-spoken. Um, I think another interesting thing is that the pandemic has really shined a light on exactly what it means, right? So before this, there was interest in healthcare, but I think the interest really exacerbated when we saw that we could develop a vaccine in record time. Um, so there's really no better example of exactly what Lisa's talking about, that healthcare has actionable helpful things. There's no other industry really that could provide the attention to detail and help to people that healthcare can provide. Um, so just just wanted to to maybe highlight that as a as a example of when people are seeing really the power of what healthcare can do and how transformative. I, I um 
You know, I agree. I, I was I was blown away just uh, in terms of what you're saying, Ali, and the pandemic in, in the context of the pandemic. I was surprised to find out that the COVID genome was sequenced in the third week of March, which is right when you know things were sort of really exploding on the on the COVID front. And just even think about the timeline that it took for the vaccine. Right prior to this, I think the quickest vaccine ever was four years, maybe it was the mumps vaccine. Um, and so just think about the timeline that we expedited. Right. Um, and it really goes to all different sectors within the field, right? Government was involved, regulatory was involved, scientists were involved, public health officials were involved, the public was involved in terms of volunteering themselves to test the vaccine. And so I think this was just such a great community effort um, where we saw all the sectors come together and there are lots of opinions on what could have been done better or what should have been done better. But of course, at the end result, we got a vaccine in record time. And I think that just speaks to the accelerated pace of innovation that we're seeing. Um, and I think hopefully it will also show that the best form for healthcare is going to be using more of an upstream approach as, this, as opposed to a downstream approach. So trying to catch things early and do preventative work as opposed to catching them and then um, providing treatment. And I think as you're talking about next generation sequencing is a really big part of, you know, the technology that's facilitated our abilities to do this. Ali, please tell us about the areas of biotech and genomics, uh, the subsectors that you cover as an analyst at ARC. Sure. Uh, so I joined ARC about two-ish years ago now. Uh, really interesting timing because um, that was around February, <laughs> just the time you're mentioning. So I joined just before the pandemic, which is obviously an interesting time to start a new position. Uh, and prior to that, um, I had a, a totally different career path. Um, my background was in epidemiology and biostatistics. I was involved in cancer research, also did consulting for AI and healthcare at IBM Watson Health. Um, I did some consulting myself. I became really interested in innovation and patenting. Uh, I was on a patent review board. I also have a few patents myself. Um, and so this convergence of AI, patenting, innovation, healthcare uh, was really, really interesting to me. Um, I came to ARC from actually looking um, into getting financing for a startup that I was working on. Uh, and I fell in love with ARC and mission and how the analysts all work together, how we think about different technologies coming together um, to create even better technologies um, and lowering cost declines. So um, I think there's a lot of really great opportunities. And as Lisa was mentioning too, the idea of it being in healthcare, which just has such a vast impact on the world. Uh, I just feel really lucky to work in this. But a lot of what I cover is what you just mentioned and what we'll get into now, which is gene editing, gene therapy, immunotherapies, cell therapies. So I'm a therapeutics analyst at ARC. So anything involved with the treatment will basically be covered by me. Uh, we have another analyst at ARC. Um, his name is Simon Barnett. He's fantastic. And he covers diagnostics and tools. Um, and recently we hired another analyst, Pierce, who helps Simon and I in our respective coverage areas and also covers iBio as well. One thing I, I, I uh... I think is really notable about ARC, and I'd like to point it out, is the fact that, that you know, uh, you and the other analysts at the firm are actually from your respective backgrounds. You all started in the fields as opposed to being financial people, starting out as analysts at banks or, or you know, broker dealers. 
you actually all come from the respective backgrounds. Like you actually have a clinical biology background. You're all from the respective professions and, and, and segment sectors of the market that you cover. So you, you actually have the experiential background. Uh, you, you know what's yeah, going on. Yeah, and when talking to Kathy about this, she would say that um, it's much easier to teach someone finances than it is to teach them genomics. Uh, so um, she likes she likes to have analysts and um, with deep domain expertise, and so that they can understand those those really um, dense and maybe difficult to interpret topics. Um, and then, of course, most most people who you know understand genomics or AI or others, um, you tend to be pretty good with numbers. Um, and and I would say that therapeutics specifically is pretty interesting. Um, there are a significant amount of our companies that we believe have high potential for growth, um, but also are pre-revenue. So at that point, the most important thing to understand is the science and to make sure that the science, the the leadership team, the you know ability to execute, those are all put in place, and then the financials will come. Um, and so I think that that creates a really special research ecosystem for ARC. And that's why we are very transparent. We put out all of our research. We love feedback. Um, I try to post, you know, thoughts on Twitter or Medium or through blogs. And we love hearing from people because we believe that through a community, we're stronger. And so we also have a program where we have team developers who are, you know, leaders in their respective areas. So we bring them in too. And we have a weekly brainstorm where every Friday, um, we present, you know, things we're thinking about, things we're researching, and we welcome feedback from industry experts because I think the most important thing is to stay humble and to appreciate feedback and to learn from other people. And so I think we all do that. We all work really closely um, throughout the analyst team because of all these important convergences that happen. Um, and I, I definitely do agree, Pierre, that that's certainly is one of the really interesting things about ARC and probably one of, um, you know, one of the reasons that we have such a differentiated approach. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of genomics, gene editing, and DNA sequencing. What is CRISPR gene editing and next generation DNA sequencing? And what are some of the easier ways or analogies to describe what that means? Yeah, so, you know, probably back to the other question, which <laughs> we've been dotting around, right, but CRISPR right. gene editing, you mentioned, and I think, you know, it, it, it could never be a podcast with me without delving into CRISPR because it's just one of the most fascinating tools um, that, that I have the pleasure to learn about. Um, you know, CRISPR is a precision tool. It can edit DNA. Um, what it does is it can delete, it can insert, or it can change a DNA sequence. Um, and, and, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier and why this is so important is that it can potentially create functional cures. Um, we also talked about a little bit earlier, next generation sequencing, which is another technology that we believe at ARC has tremendous potential. And we've already seen a significant amount of that potential. And so NGS, we can say for short, um, it's a really special tool as well. And it can essentially show sequences for DNA or RNA. And, you know, even more recently, um, proteins. Um, and as we all know, the central dogma is DNA goes to RNA, which goes to protein. Um, and so this is used to look for genetic variation. And so we talked about in the beginning, like, how does this really impact health? Well, we can now see in our genes, if there's something that is a variant or something that is a mutation, 
And if it is a disease-causing mutation, there may be something we can do about it. And it may be through CRISPR gene editing, it may be through gene therapy, um, or another type of modality. Uh, how exactly does that happen? Like, for example, in the case of, of uh, chronic diseases or, or cancer, how does the gene editing technology actually manifest? Yeah. So let's put it into practical terms. Like I, I think you mentioned this earlier in terms of a metaphor. So, you know, what CRISPR does essentially is you have a CRISPR-Cas9 enzyme. There are other enzymes, but for, for maybe ease of understanding, let's just go with that one. It's the most common. It's also the one that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier won the Nobel Prize for. Basically, what that does is it's attached to a guide RNA, and the guide RNA is going to lead that enzyme to a particular spot in the DNA, right. and then it's going to be able to cut it. When it gets there, it's going to cut both strands of the DNA. And so when we talk about metaphors, a lot of times we think of that as molecular scissors. Um, however, do you see it in the lab? It looks like a clear substance. So I'm disappointed. Um, and then there are new modalities of CRISPR too, right? We're increasing its functionality um, and we're, we're able to see and better ways, not necessarily better, but maybe better for different indications. So another type of CRISPR could be base editing. And so with base editing, one of the metaphors that are used often is a pencil and eraser. So we know that in our DNA, we have, we have base pairs. And so if there's a mismatch in a base pair, or a point mutation, you may be able to just take that eraser, erase it, and change it to be the correct pair. And how that works is in a very similar fashion. We'd take a CRISPR, doesn't necessarily have to be a CRISPR enzyme, but you can take a CRISPR enzyme, you attach it to a guide RNA, and this time we have a deaminase, and the deaminase basically facilitates that chemical reaction. Um, but in this case, we cause a nick to one strand of the DNA, and we're not cutting both strands of the DNA. And then a newer form of right. editing that's come out recently as well is prime editing. Essentially the same thing. The metaphor there would be like a, a copy-paste mechanism on your computer uh, that we all know way too well that they're using way too much. Uh, again, it, it's pretty similar. You'd have the same enzyme. Uh, we call this a PEG RNA or a prime editing guide RNA, but essentially does the same. Um, and then you'd have uh, a sequence that's there and the reverse transcriptase is there instead of the deaminase. And essentially it can take an RNA, um, uh, you know, piece and create it into a DNA. <laughs> and so that's one that that's um, really exciting and we're going to see new developments. Uh, Stat Ruse actually did an article on the best and worst CRISPR analogies. Uh, right. So that made me think that when you were talking about analogies. Uh, and they included ones like Swiss Army Knife, uh, Photoshop, or like a bomb removal squad. Um, we also created a conversation on Twitter where um, we were trying to come up with different sports analogies. And Pierre, it might have even been when I talked to you last time that I was yeah. trying to do like a football analogy and it just failed miserably because I knew nothing about football. Um, we did, we did have one, I think this was David Nels, who's the CEO and co-founder of a, of a new stealth biotech startup. So we don't know which one, but formerly Lacona Bio. Um, and it was that the guide RNA is the quarterback telling all of the linemen what to do. The linemen That's are great. the CRISPR-Cas enzyme following yeah. the orders of the guide RNA. And then a DNA nick is a field wheel. 
um, and a double straighted grape is reaching the end zone. <laughs> Perfect. So, <laughs> I think we tried to hockey one, but because Canadian. I mean, so so much of this, so much of the work in this business is getting people on board, right? I mean, it's so important to get people on board by helping them to understand, you know, exactly what they're investing in. Good storytelling to to get people or to help people get on board. And, you know, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds uh, when you're talking around biotechnology, which are, you know, very intricate and, and very complex. And, and so, so anyways, thank you very much for, for, for uh, sharing that. I think, I think that's something that, that most people can relate to <laughs> the, uh, the sports analogies always work. So I think by now, you know, everybody's familiar with, you know, my heritage DNA and, and, you know, uh, ancestry.com for, for sequencing, you know, their family DNA and telling them where they're from. Uh, and I mean, all of that was ultimately made possible by the advances that were happening in DNA sequencing. But let's talk about next generation DNA sequencing a little bit. And, and maybe you can describe, you know, why why that area is so important. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's just the idea of, of being able to read your genes. Um, and so knowing anything that's actually going on within your body. Um, and we've done a lot of work on on looking at how, you know, next generation sequencing can also then play into other technologies and convergences, right? So thinking about how NGS and artificial intelligence, which is something we're talking about a lot, and then CRISPR, which we just talked about a lot, how the three of them together are really a powerful convergence. And we did a lot of work on this in our Big Ideas deck. I think this was back in 2020, where we showed how the three of these technologies, if when they converge, can do something really powerful. And this also goes into actually how we think about modeling therapeutics companies at ARC. And so we think that these technologies will allow uh, a reduction in time to market and also decrease failure rates. Um, and so what that means is that drugs will get to market quicker. Um, and we want to have drugs that won't succeed um, go into the clinic. And obviously, it's not a foolproof, uh, um, you know, method, but but it will significantly reduce both of those. Um, and some examples of the ways this can actually be done, um, you know, for example, if you think about AI, we were using AI when I was at Watson to find clinical trials. Um, we were looking for centers that would have the best patients. And sometimes what happens is you pick centers and they never register any patients. And so what happens is you lose both a lot of time because you have to do a site visit. You have to make sure the hospital looks equipped. You have to set up that hospital, um, but then they don't recruit any patients because they don't have those particular patients at their hospital. Um, and so obviously that can delay the trial. So using AI, we can actually find the patients that are going to be um, the most likely to respond. And we can also look for the hospitals that have those patients. We can also look for those patients by using NGS. So we can find patients that we think are most likely to respond based on biomarkers or other such um, type of information. Um, in terms of CRISPR, gene editing, gene therapy, obviously there we're thinking about real potential cures. And so the convergence of all these three make things really exciting. And so, you know, we published a blog on this, um, about this on our website. But basically, yeah. when we think about how we model therapeutics companies, we highlight how 
um, we could add 25% time to market, 25% failure rate reduction. And when we do, um, and we also compare this to how the street thinks about modeling, um, and we can probably do a whole other podcast just on how we model, um, but this adds significant value to pipelines. And so, for example, um, if we think about a discovery asset, um, the net present value would go from 34 million in like a status quo evaluation to 144 million for, for an ARC estimate. Um, so, you know, we just see tremendous value um, in the convergence of these technologies. Right. So, so the sum of the, the sum of the parts, um, I think at the outset, it appears to be a lot less, but when you combine the, when you combine them through convergence, uh, they, they end up being much greater. Is that right? I, I think you own a lot of these technologies are, are pretty powerful, but um, when you actually put them together, they can be even more powerful. Yeah. So now do you foresee in the future um, uh, this collaboration becoming a, a very big part of, of the, uh, the market in terms of, of biotechnology? Yeah, and I, I think the, the more exciting thing is, is even just thinking about the pace of innovation. Like these are the technologies that are really impactful right now, but we may not even be able to predict, you know, new technologies that can come to the market um, that will be incredibly impactful, um, you know, within the next decade. Um, so when we think about just in terms of gene editing, when we think about zinc finger nucleases, talons, and we think of CRISPR, we can see the pace where they came out with, you know, the first paper to the first uh, ex vivo application or creating the therapy outside of the body to the first in vivo application, creating the therapy within the body. Um, you know, the timeline has just vastly accelerated, yeah. but also the amount of diseases um, that we can actually attack using these modalities is also increasing. So, you know, I, I think those technologies will continue to be important. And I think there are going to be many more that we're going to see because they're going to come onto the scene um, and their timelines will be vastly, vastly improved as well. Yeah. One of the most exciting uh, gene therapies in, in sort of very recent history is the uh, sickle cell anemia uh, gene therapy, right? I mean, that's been quite a revolutionary uh, step forward for those who are suffering from sickle cell anemia in terms of changing the genetic makeup of blood. Yeah, so that um, particular uh, therapy that you're talking about, I think it's created by Vertex and by CRISPR Therapeutics. Uh, it's called CTX01. And what's really, really exciting about it is that it's in patients. Um, they've treated right. about 70 patients. CRISPR's treated about 100 patients throughout their whole pipeline. Um, and that's like starting to get real numbers. Um, so it's not in mice anymore. It's not just in non-human primates anymore. These are real, real patients that, that are really having their lives impacted. I know Victoria Gray, who I think was the first patient to ever have the therapy, has been on NPR and a few um, other channels talking about how this has really changed and affected her life. So it, it's just really interesting and, and great to see how these therapeutics are actually um, being sort of in the clinic and, and what impact they're having. Um, for anyone who doesn't know also sickle cell and beta thalassemia, um, they're essentially diseases where a person is plagued 
um, with their hemoglobin taking a sickle shape and sickle basically look like a half moon. That's right. Um, best way to describe it. Uh, what it should look is like a little disc. If you've ever seen blood kind of traveling through, um, you, you'd see these little, um, kind of disc looking things, uh, for the red blood cells. It's the odd shape, the, the odd sickle shape of those, uh, you know, malformed cells that's causing blockages. Right. And you can get ones. all kinds of issues with that. So you can get pain, hospitalizations, yeah. you may need transfusions. And so it's, it's really pretty impressive to see that the patients who've taken this drug thus far, obviously we can't comment on the future, um, have not needed the hospitalizations, haven't had the pain, have been able to have, you know, go on with their everyday lives and, and the safety profile so far looks good as well. Um, you know, Jennifer Downer once said to us, um, in, in one of our meetings that she attended, uh, which was a live broadcast with Kathy, she said, no news is good news, um, or agreed with Kathy when Kathy asked about no news <laughs> is good news. And I, I think that's really relevant here. They've treated, you know, about 70 patients at, just with the CRISPR vertex trial to date. Um, and we're not hearing any sort of news from it. Uh, of course, with any new modality, we wait for further sort of, you know, detailing, you know, the FDA came out very recently with a, a bit of a draft guidance on how they're going to view gene therapies, gene editing therapies. Um, and so that's, that remains to be seen from a regulatory perspective, what happens. They did differentiate between a double strand break, um, and no double strand break or NIP. Um, and so we'll have to see how the FDA handles that regulation. But I do think that at least for now, there's, there's, there's a lot of excitement around the idea of potentially saying, Hey, you thought you were going to always suffer from this disease. We have something that we can actually help you now. What happens to the malformed blood cells? Do they actually get transformed into healthy blood cells or are they replaced by healthy blood cells ultimately? So this form is uh, the traditional CRISPR form that they're using. So it's kind of going all the way back to when we were talking about metaphors. It's using those molecular scissors. So we have a CRISPR-Cas9 enzyme. It's attached to a guide RNA. It gets to where it needs to go and it cuts the DNA. And so that we call gene disruption. And why this is really um, a good way of doing it potentially for sickle cell and beta thalassemia is because what happens is it disrupts the adult hemoglobin gene and it turns on the fetal hemoglobin gene. And right near the time of birth, your fetal hemoglobin is shut off and your adult hemoglobin will turn on. But obviously the issue with these patients is the adult hemoglobin is malfunctioning. So once that shuts off, we have the healthy fetal hemoglobin turn on and all goes back to normal. So I think that's a really sort of easy way of understanding how gene disruption could be a really good way of treating these patients because all we're doing is shutting off a gene that isn't working and we're turning on this fetal hemoglobin, which works, but wasn't on. Tell us more about the advent of personalized medicine as you see it. How do you define the word personalized? Yeah, I think personalized is just as it sounds, right? So personal. So it's a treatment plan. It's a diagnosis. It's a um, therapy that's specifically designed for you. So whereas previously, and, and there's been tons of literature on this, even in clinical trials, it wasn't a representative sample. There wasn't enough um, sort of minorities represented, but we would say, well, that drug is good for everyone. Um, whereas, you know, we're still, we're still getting there with clinical trial representation. I think one of the important things is that 
we're working on um, creating treatment plans and paradigms for particular patients. Um, and I think, you know, maybe one sort of huge catalyst that has allowed us to do this was the Human Genome Project. Um, and so I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but maybe just to give a little bit more background or context on what the Human Genome Project was, is it was this really huge international effort um, where we wanted to understand and map all of the genes which are included in the human genome. Um, and by doing this, then we were able to sequence those genes, as we've mentioned uh, before, and see, you know, which diseases people were potentially at risk for. Um, and then we could actually create a, a treatment plan that would be specific towards that individual. So, you know, thinking about an example here, we could think about CAR T cell therapy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that peer, but that is a way in which we genetically modify T cells, which are important for immune um, and, and immunity within the body. They're part of the immune system. Um, and these engineered cells actually can attack a specific protein. Maybe it's on a cancer cell, maybe it's a cancer cell. So, you know, this could be a way of doing it instead of using chemotherapy, where chemotherapy you basically are injecting, um, you know, poison, which so that affects killing all cells. So your healthy cells and your cancer cells. Um, and so this type of therapy would be specific in which you would target only the cancer cells. So I think there are a lot of um, good ways that we're going to get to diagnosis and treatment faster. A lot of those are going to be things like we mentioned before, like, you know, NGS or, or AI. Um, this specifically is going to be really important for um, attacking actual cancer cells as opposed to attacking healthy cells um, and, and being able to personalize it by using your own cells. Um, so I think that's kind of going to be the main advantage. And the reason that we can you get to the sickest group of patients, um, that's going to be because we need to have a vein to vein time, it's called, which is essentially when you take the blood out um, you grow those T cells and then you put them back in. So that's, you know, from, from step A, when you take it out to step B, when you put it back in, um, you know, that's obviously an oversimplification of the process, but, um, that time is really important. And so if you're really, really sick and you have limited time, you may not be able to wait, but if you, um, can get donor cells, then you know, that's right off the shelf. And so that could happen a lot quicker. Um, and so that's why it would expand that personal market potential, but also help um, a different group of patients that are really sick and need the treatment right away. Um, of course, these, these cells sometimes need to be shipped depending where the manufacturing facility is. And so all of that time needs to be taken into account. The pharmaceutical business has earned a terrible reputation for developing profitable drugs that treat symptoms rather than cure disease. Companies in the gene editing space are disrupting big pharma. They are threatening to make a vast swath of existing and profitable drug therapies obsolete with cures and curative treatments. How close are we to the day where we'll see cures for terminal or chronic diseases? Essentially, you know, the FDA has now approved around 10 gene therapies. Um, We've done some research on this to kind of try to forecast how many that could be within the next decade. Um, and what we see is that, um, and of course, this again goes with our model where we adjust failure rate and time to market. But we think that there could be about 170 expected commercializations in the next decade for gene editing and gene therapies. 
And so, right. you know, what that says is that, um, yes, there could be a lot of disruption. But I, I think the other point there is that I think pharmaceutical companies have an appetite for this. We also did an analysis where we saw that, you know, we looked at traditional therapies and then we looked at gene therapies and we saw that um, if you look at it on a per life year basis, the gene therapies actually are cheaper. So that's something maybe the pharma companies wouldn't like, um, but it is a significant um, upfront cost that the patient needs to pay. And, you know, we're going to see what happens with with Medicare, Medicaid um, and, and providers as well and see what, what we're going to be able to kind of figure out from that and how much they'll be able to get. But I think the idea here is, you know, when we talk about trials like the Vertex CRISPR trial that have already treated 70 patients, these therapies are going to come to patients soon. And so um, I think that the pharmaceutical industry is going to need to get on board. Um, and, and so many of them have, right? The, the, we, of course, the example of Novartis with Solgensma, um, the spinal muscular atrophy drug, um, which is, you know, obviously a huge upfront cost of about 2 million, um, but really important for patients. Um, and we're seeing that can have a significant um, effect on, on patients and these young babies. Uh, I think one of the things that, that's important to think about is that when we looked at R&D spend um, that's going to be devoted to some of these innovative therapies like chain editing um, and chain therapy, we saw that that amount of R&D spend could grow from 3% to 17%. This was by 2026. Um, and so it just shows that that's what we're moving towards. We are seeing it from trials. We're seeing it from publications. We're seeing it from expected R&D dollars. And so I think that the pharmaceutical companies have realized that. I think this was on Pfizer's last earnings call. They had a slide where they just sort of talked about their, their RNA or mRNA strategy going forward. And they talked about their interest in base editing and, of course, you know, their deals that they've made within that field. Um, and so I, I think that the pharmaceutical companies are getting on board. Um, and then the cost is always a really difficult conversation. But I think that there'll be ways in which the costs will all work out for all parties involved. Um, and it's, it's a really exciting time to see all these innovative therapies that are going to come to market. And I think it's going to be within the next decade. So it's exciting. I, I see what you're saying in terms of this collaboration between all all parties to you know to make the cost of these therapies in line with you know affordability in terms of of people actually being able to benefit from them as opposed to being out of reach. You know, it, it's really in the interest of all parties to chip in or subsidize these projects so that they do become mainstream as opposed to having a $2 million treatment be forever out of reach. That's one way to potentially alleviate some of that cost issue. Um, but it's definitely not something that, you know, is, is being taken for granted. And I think there's a lot of discussion amongst, you know, leadership in terms of how to deal with that. But, you know, when, when you're able to provide functional cures for patients, I think you really can't um, focus on just the cost. Can I ask Ali a question? Yesterday in our genomics webinar, you mentioned a website, clinicaltrials.gov. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if anybody listening to that webinar went to that website, uh, would do those clinical trials, they, you know, they have different prices. Do people apply to get accepted? Is this something that people can 
say, okay, I've been told I have some rare, you know, disorder. Uh, perhaps if I go there, I'll be able to find something that might save my life. Uh, but is it going to cost $2 million? I just wondered, is, is that type of information also available on that website? I haven't looked, but I just wondered. Yeah, so clinicaltrials.gov is a website that houses all current clinical trials. Um, and so it's a way if you're a patient, you know, I use it all the time too, but if you're a patient, it's, it's really helpful and it's a centralized place. Um, sometimes there, there are some words or, or a bit of medical jargon in some of the titles, so that can be a little bit difficult. Um, but, but it should be accessible to the average reader. Um, in terms of Lisa's question on whether it involves pricing, so typically you do not pay to be on a clinical trial. Um, you may need to pay for some tests, um, but typically that, that's paid for by the clinical trial. Um, and sometimes you even get small stipends or, or money to take cabs to the, to the hospital, depending on the clinical trial. Um, so, so that wouldn't be when the cost would happen. The cost would happen at commercialization. So once the therapy is FDA approved, then you would have to pay for the, the therapy or it would be covered by insurance or a portion of it would be covered by insurance. Thank you. And that isn't any different between Canada and the U.S. Would that be correct? That's, That's right. Kind of yeah, it's it's uh, it's reminiscent. I mean, the the discussion we're having right now, uh, I think these are questions people would ask. But it's reminiscent of, of of you know, to me, it's reminiscent of the story around surrounding you know autonomous uh, autonomous vehicles and the debate about you know it having a significant impact on insurance premiums. When, when uh, you consider that, right. you know, ultimately the goal of autonomous driving is safer roads, less accidents, right. that will significantly reduce right. the amount of insurance that we all have to pay for driving. Uh, so I, I see the similar, uh, the, you know, the same kind of dynamics ultimately coming to biotechnology and treatments, uh, you know, you know and, and making cures accessible. I just want to mention some of the the challenges around advisors investing and opening up this opportunity to invest in a genomics and biotech strategy to their clients. And it really is uh, everything we're talking to Ali about today, because this is a sophisticated conversation. Yeah. Uh, this conversation takes time. Uh, advisors, you know, are very, very busy servicing many households and, and clients and, and trying to get a lot done uh, at every appointment, uh, explaining, you know, any of these underlying technologies uh, really takes, you know, some efforts. They need to paint a bigger picture. Uh, but in order to even be willing to go out on a limb to talk about something that, you know, I, I'm not a genomist, right? Uh, so. What do I talk about when I talk about this? I talk about the strength of someone such, such as Ali. Uh, and so we're trying to give advisors the understanding that true sophisticated expertise, it's not a financial exercise. It is an exercise by a genomist uh, who specializes in therapeutics and, and another uh, yeah, biomolecular engineer from Hopkins who specializes in, in diagnostics to put together this, this bigger picture uh, so that clients believe. And to the point you just made about electric vehicles, you know, I can talk to somebody about investing in strategies that include electric vehicles and include drones because they see Teslas on the road. They see commercials about new electric 
vehicles being made, they see drones from the Toronto police flying around yeah. in downtown. Okay. That, okay, that's real. I see that. But some of this, you know, it's funny. At the time that the pandemic was happening, and this is the first point you made, Allie, about, okay, the only way we, we got the vaccines was this miracle, right? The miracle of sequencing, the miracle of testing, the miracle of being able to get through all, all of that medical data of time to say, okay, these, these vaccines and these boosters, these are, these are safe for people to take and safe for children, et cetera. But there isn't a day-to-day -day belief that some of these things really are going to happen in enough time and they don't have enough information about them in a way that they can digest it. And so it's a underappreciated investment area because it requires a real interest and a passion on a part of the advisor and investor to, you know, invest in a strategy that has stocks that are, you know, just, you know, you know, real things. The top five holdings in the Genovic strategy have average year-over-year -year growth, revenue growth of over 230%. That's not your average stock, right? Uh, and in these risk-off times, they've been punished brutally because they may not have a bottom line. They have outrageous revenue growth. And so it's a more sophisticated uh, story that takes a longer period of time. And as Ali said, I know I'm looking at the list of holdings right here. Yeah. Some of them don't have, are pre-revenue. Some of them don't have revenue, right? If you look at the average across the entire 48 holdings, that's 144%, okay? So some of them don't have revenue yet. Some of them don't have a bottom line. So it's a true belief in the expertise of ARC to prioritize those holdings, to understand who might hit it first, right? Who might have a a better outcome, how's someone's trial going? Uh, because a question that was asked yesterday in a webinar that we hosted is, well, how does, you know, Ali have access to the information from these clinical trials? How does she know that, that something's working versus something isn't working? Uh, and that you might want to speak about that, Ali, because that was a question that came out yesterday in our, in our webinar. Pfizer's are trying to understand how, how are you doing it? <laughs> are we picking these stocks? Sure. I, you know, I think it takes a, a long time um, <laughs> to, to know where to go, but the data is, is mostly available. So, you know, I, I get alerts, I put on alerts um, for all new clinical trials. You can also put alerts on if there are changes to clinical trials. Um, so that website is a good resource, clinicaltrials.gov. Um, company websites will put up their data. Um, and so you can see it there. They put up their new presentations. Um, one of the most important ways, though, is attending scientific meetings or academic conferences. And so there they'll present their their newest research. And another way is, is obviously through academic journals. Um, and so looking at the academic journals and getting the, the actual raw data can be really important. And you can look in all the supplemental information from different journals um, and different journal articles to actually see some of the specific sequences. Um, so that's typically what I do. It's the point you made earlier though, Pierre, right? That, you know, someone who may be the most, have the sharpest pencil, you know, in town and an MBA from, you know, wherever, uh, doesn't, can't read an academic journal on the, out, on the findings that are coming from a clinical trial or understand the language even 
uh, that's being described about, you know, how sick or how healthy or what was the condition of the particular patient. So, you know, I looked at one of these sample uh, things. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I couldn't digest it, right? Because it's not my, I didn't have the knowledge to get through it, right? Uh, so I think it's it's something that, again, speaks to these these strategies that are readily available. If they're not backed by true expertise in that particular subject matter, especially in, in, in the broad area of innovation, you know, and I can say this, you know, the case of Ali, but, you know, all across the board, uh, the area of expertise is really so deep that the conversations, in many cases, they get wonky. Uh, so it's a, a very, very special, unique opportunity. Yep. The big ideas research study that ARC Invest released uh, not that long ago, over 200 pages. Uh, very, very fascinating information. But to be quite honest, there are things in there that are, that are at the wonk level uh, that are hard to understand. Uh, now, we have people asking for it all the time, and we're so excited to share it, and we you know, are very have high level of confidence, but, but it's not, you know, your average read. Your webinar yesterday, we received great feedback. Oh, Ali created slides that were really very simple to understand. And she took people on a learning journey <laughs> uh, and she didn't lose them in the weeds. Uh, and so it happens to be one of, one of her best, uh, she's always good, but that was one, one of her best, uh, and a picture of her working in, in an actual <laughs> lab, uh, which was really. Again, yeah. the point, you know, Pierre, that you made earlier. Uh, and so, you know, we just feel really uh, fortunate, you know, to uh, partner with ARC Invest on, on these, you know, ETFs and mutual experts like Ali, you know, in particular, because you're very thoughtful and, and you care about the audience understanding. Uh, and so that was very educational. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So speaking of which, markets have been really unkind this past year to stocks in the disruptive space of genomics. What do you think's behind this? And what do you think lies ahead for the valuations of these companies? I think a good analogy on where you're going on this is that if you took a ruler and you said, okay, here are 12 inches and, and let's say it's a year, each inch is a year, okay? The analysts on Wall Street can't get the next 90 days correct, okay? 90 days, all right? So where's that on my ruler? That is like way down here, okay? But Ali was just talking about the progress we're going to make over the next yeah. decade. Well, that's way out here, okay? That's that's 10 years, okay? And all of yeah, all the forecasts yeah. are fine. No, go ahead. So I want to I bring mean, that that's up. That's really like, you know, the street doesn't yeah, have sorry, the go skills. Ahead, go ahead. And they only care about what's going to happen in the next quarter. And the, and. And that is what we're talking about. It's not even on the ruler. Ali, in your research, you forecast that we could see the market cap of stocks in this space grow at about a 50% for 54%, a compound rate of growth from today's $131 billion to $1.1 trillion, or just slightly over 8x from January's levels between now and 2026. Yeah, so I think there's a few things that go into it. So, you know, one thing, first of all, to maybe highlight is that even though some of the companies are pre-revenue, they do get some form of revenue stream, not all of the companies, but a lot of them are partnered with large cap pharmas. 
Um, and so those, when things hit the milestones that they need to, they, they might get, you know, those, those payments attached with those milestones. So just to highlight that some of them, it's not like they're at a, <laughs> a negative, they do get some form of revenue, some of the companies. You know, I think you bring up a good point. And, and one of the things that we highlighted in our Big Ideas Deck 2022, as you mentioned, was this, you know, 1.1 number, which is obviously um, a, a really, really big number. And, you know, how we get there is, first of all, we think about the potential commercializations. So as I mentioned, with the way we model, we think about, you know, 170 potential commercializations within the next decade. Um, we also think about the increased spend um, on R&D, so 3 to 17% by 2026, which will just equal to more commercializations, theoretically, as long as everything's effective and safe. And then if you look at the academic journals and do a PubMed search, so PubMed is a, is a database where you can look at all the academic journals. It's one of the ones I use a lot. There are many others as well. Um, you can see that the, the amount of publications on CRISPR, gene editing, gene therapies, they're just continuing to rise. Um, and so we know that that's where things are headed. Um, and so when you look at all of the sort of functions in terms of, you know, thinking about where people are spending their money, what direction people are going, um, you know, we just see this as a massive opportunity in terms of market cap, in terms of companies entering into the field as well. Many, many new companies have entered this just in this year. So, um, yeah, we think this could be a very, very large opportunity and uh, we're, we're excited to be sort of at the forefront of this innovation. Well, I think, I think we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, um, in this conversation. I, I, I want to just add that, you know, some of these companies have the potential to be the Tesla's of tomorrow or, or, you know, the Pfizer's of tomorrow, if you want to put it in, in the sense of, you know, going from being a, a growth company to being a potentially a giant, but maybe, maybe it would help to give also some perspective in terms of what the current range of market capitalizations of these companies are and, and, um, you know, to what extent they could grow. So I can't speak to specific market gaps. Um, but what I can say is that, um, ARC has particular fertiles. Um, that we will buy. And so all of our companies are at least, you know, that threshold and above. And we look and compare, obviously, different CAGRs to ensure that the companies within our portfolio are the companies that are most likely to grow at an exponential rate. And we also, at the same time, are obviously always looking for companies that at the same time that they have this potentially huge growth opportunity, they also have um, a cost decline opportunity. And so when those two marry each other is when you really can see some magic. Very few stocks in the ETF, probably two of the holdings in the ETF are below a $500 million market cap. That's about two of them. Uh, the rest are above that. Uh, so uh, ARC is very careful about, you know, having companies that do have at least a representative size, you know, for valuation and forecasting, because that gives their analysis makes it more robust. Some of these technologies are, are really new and fresh and sometimes misunderstood. So I don't like to give a specific market cap range will be in the sense that, you know, it, it's tough to get some of the smaller illiquid um, companies into the fund, but certainly it becomes really interesting and exciting for some of those smaller companies. So we have a large range, you know, from the, from some of the, some of the small micro caps, like Lisa mentioned, but 
um, you know, maybe SPIDCAP is, it's sort of where our sweet spot is. What, what matters is what the ultimate outcome of the investing exercise is, which is that if you're going to maximize your returns over the long term, the best time to be investing is obviously when, when prices are, are low, uh, not high and getting higher. And so, so given the fact that the story hasn't changed from let's say two or three years ago, um, which is the better opportunity to invest in, in the market uh, that's rising and peaking or to invest in a market that has, that has experienced a, a, a drawdown. And, um, you know, I think this goes for, for the technology sector in general, but we're, we're sitting at a point in time where the opportunity, the second chance, um, that investors said they were looking for <laughs> has come and you know, now it's decision time. It's very hard and, and behaviorally, it is difficult to make the decision to invest in a market that is, that, that has dropped in value. Um, but that is ultimately the time when you're going to get the best returns in the long run. The return expectations is what has risen. Yeah. I think here, this goes back to how we started, but before we started the podcast, you know, we were talking just about market conditions and I said, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why are, why are biotech stocks, you know, going down when company fundamentals and the science is only increasing or staying consistent. So I think that's just kind of a, a way of summing it. And, and of course we, we can, you know, debate further about what's actually going on, right? There's a lot of things going on within the world that are certainly putting pressure on the market. And um, even just within the healthcare space, we didn't have really an FDA commissioner. We had an acting FDA commissioner. We now have an FDA commissioner. Maybe that will create more sort of stability yep. within the healthcare market. There's always a question, drug reform, drug pricing. Um, you know, sometimes that can affect the market as well. Um, you know, different people leaving posts, yep. et cetera, causes some instability. So I think there's some specific healthcare reasons why there's been challenges. And obviously, as you mentioned, sort of globally, there's been some challenges with a pandemic and war, um, you know, obviously um, interest rate. There, there's been a lot of... Um, conditions that have affected the market. But I think more broadly, you know, your point is well taken, which is, do you want to jump on the bandwagon when everything's going up? Or would you rather be here at the bottom when, you know, there seems to be uncertainty in the world we live in, but, um, you know, less certainty than the fact that markets usually rebound when they go down. So that's the way that we're kind of viewing it right now. Thank you both so much for your insight and your incredibly valuable time. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, as always, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Pierre. Thank you. Thank you so much.